Hey, good morning. Welcome. So glad you're here. It's great to be together in our online service. And I hope God really has blessed you these last two teaching parts of our series, Moving Beyond the Faint Heart. Uh, much appreciation to Vince for leading us through part two. And here we are in part three of this teaching series. Uh, Christian writer Andy Crouch captured a, an experience he had in Florence, Italy, when he attended an Easter celebration at the Piazza del Duomo, a plaza in the middle of the city. He described how at the beginning of Holy Mass, the celebration was phenomenal. There were, there were spectacles of lights and decorations and colors and, and even fireworks and such a display of brilliance in color and noise and celebration that he said this was really overwhelming. He looked and he saw among the hundreds to thousands who filled the plaza that most people had their smartphone up videoing all that was taking place in this very extravagant celebration. But then he quoted this later. He wrote, there was a sea of smartphones recording the spectacle, but I tell you, none of them captured it. It was brighter, louder, more realistic, more overwhelming than anyone could ever imagine or that any device could ever present. When I consider his response to the overwhelming nature of this one celebration, especially when he commented that there was an attempt to record the event, but no one could capture the brilliance unless you saw the occasion firsthand. My, my mind goes to the inability we have to describe God's glory. God's glory is brighter, overwhelming, louder, more brilliant, more colorful and radiant than we could ever imagine. The Holy Scriptures attempt to record God's glory, but certainly nothing can capture the glory of God. His perfect holiness, demonstrating the fullness of His beauty and might and omniscience becomes an overwhelming prospect to even verbally describe. Our minds are incapable of capturing God who is omniscient and, and omnipotent and, and He's, he's every, everywhere present and all-knowing and, and all-powerful. All the overwhelming consideration of the glory of God. Considering the magnitude of God's glory, join me in remembering a very simple story from the Old Testament concerning Moses and what Moses once asked of God. Historically, this came right after the golden calf and the, the idolatry and, and this very significant low time in Israel's life. And there was a thought on Moses' heart that Israel would not have a future because of their sin against God. And as Moses approaches God, uh, just past this horrific event in Israel's history, Moses asked one thing of God, God, please show me your glory. This is recorded in Exodus chapter 33. And then I'd like to read for you God's response. When Moses said, God, all I want to, all I want to see is your glory. Simply show me your glory. God responded in this way. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, Moses, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he answered, you cannot see my face for no one can see my glory and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will place you in the crevice of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. God himself described to Moses, 
the, the unfathomable power and greatness of His presence. Moses later would stand before the people and his face would be veiled. And the Scripture actually records in Exodus that Moses had to veil his face because simply having spoken with God, the manifested glory just from a conversation that reflected off Moses' physical face was overwhelming to those who saw him. And that glory obviously faded in the ocular physical sense. But the demonstration from Exodus 33 reminds us of how overwhelming is the glory of our God. So I would agree with that Christian writer I quoted earlier, Andy Crouch, when I, when I say to you, we may try to record and fathom God's glory and His greatness, but oh, we, we can't capture the completeness of His glory for His greatness and His fullness, His brightness becomes overwhelming. Even Moses had to be hid in the cleft of the rock. So, oh, what an amazing consideration we have before us concerning the glory of God. Now, why are we beginning our study in 2 Corinthians with a thought about the glory of God as referenced in the Old Testament? Because of something that we discover within the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. We discover Paul himself writing about the glory of Christ. And Paul commented that many are blind to the glory of Christ because they refuse to believe in, in Christ, to believe in Jesus. In fact, in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul summarized that God has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. So yes, what I love about the Scripture is how descriptive we find the knowability of God. God has made Himself known. And He has made His glory to be revealed in Jesus. So although we cannot comprehend His glory, nor can we stand in, in our present state in His glory, He has chosen to reveal Himself in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Welcome to our teaching series, Moving Beyond the Faint Heart, where we are unpacking 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to discover eight ways we move beyond discouragement. Twice in chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 16, Paul exhorted, we do not grow faint. Translated, we do not give up. Translated, we, we do not lose heart. That great word from the, from the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and verse 16, ekakeo, actually indicates one who becomes affected by an inward weariness. We would describe that experience as, yes, discouragement. Paul wrote twice in just 16 verses, do not be discouraged. Do not lose heart. Now in verse 1, Paul reminded the church in Corinth, as he reminds us, that we do not need to lose heart because of what we have received. We discovered that in part 1 of our teaching series. Also in verse 2, Paul reminded us that we do not need to lose heart or become discouraged as we stay with the truth of the gospel, as we continue to express the truth of God in Christ. So these were very simple, practical statements Paul made that encouraged his own heart and Christians of his day to move beyond a faintness of heart, to move beyond discouragement. Now we come to verse 3 and 4. And we find a third way that we move beyond discouragement. Focus on the glory of Jesus Christ. Now you understand why we began with the narrative of Exodus chapter 33 where God's glory was being demonstrated. And we understand from 2 Corinthians 4 that God has displayed His glory uh, through Jesus. In fact, the scripture reads that God has manifested His glory in the face of Christ. So as we experience Jesus, we better understand the glory of Christ because the glory of God 
is fully and perfectly manifested in Jesus. And so how do we move beyond a faint heart? Paul would say in our next verses, verse 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we should focus on the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's read those verses. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see. Now, this represents the human context of Paul. Paul certainly was addressing what you and I would call opponents or critics, those who were rising up against Paul to say that he had no credentials as an apostle or a preacher. And, and certainly, 2 Corinthians 4 demonstrates the narrative of the previous chapter, chapter 3, where we understand that Paul had to defend his apostleship over and over again throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians, as well as in many other epistles. Paul oftentimes had to defend his apostleship. He did so not to prove himself, but he knew that if someone doubted his apostleship, they may very well be tempted to doubt the gospel of Jesus. And Paul's priority was, let's talk about Jesus and, and the gospel, the good news of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the empty grave. And so Paul defended his apostleship for the sake of the gospel. But notice in verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, Paul references that the gospel did have a hindrance. There were people who were blind to the gospel. They could not see. What could they not see? Let's finish the reading. They could not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we are encouraged to move beyond discouragement by focusing upon the fullness of God in Christ, the glory of Christ, who Jesus truly is as the Son of God and the full manifestation of God in the flesh. Oftentimes in our present culture, one may be tempted to interpret Jesus based upon what he or she needs at the moment. In fact, there are many who have missed the fullness of Christology found in the Holy Scriptures, meaning the study of Christ, because our approach to Christ is based on what we think Jesus needs to do for us or who we think Jesus truly is in our own mind. When we make such flimsy attempts at understanding Jesus, we miss his fullness, the fullness of his glory. The reason I believe many Christians may live under the strong hand of discouragement may lie in our misunderstanding of Jesus. For if we truly saw Jesus for who he is and understood that through our faith in Christ, we have a personal relationship with God and with God's son, Jesus, then how could we remain in a spirit of oppression under the hand of discouragement? This was the very reason Paul could hear his critics and certainly become saddened by those who were antagonistic against him. But, but Paul would not suffer loss under discouragement for he would stand on the promise of Jesus Christ. What he had received by mercy and ministry, the truth of the gospel, and here the glory of Christ, the fullness of Jesus, became a strong focus for Paul that allowed him to rise above discouragement and to move beyond those experiences in life that would push back upon him, those discouraging moments. So within this context and within 2 Corinthians 4, particularly focusing on verse 3 and 4, I'd like to make two observations with you. The first, a human context, and the second, a personal reality. Now, I love the fact that in every part of the Bible, when we dig into the Scriptures and when we desire to hear how God is teaching us through His Word, there will always be involved a human context. There will be a place where we can identify and thus then see how the truth becomes a personal reality for each of us. So, these are our two observations for just a moment, a, a human context and a personal reality. Let's begin with uh, the human context. Now, when we begin reading in verse 3, this is what we read. But if, in fact, our gospel is veiled. Now, verse 3 begins with a conjunction, but which means Paul's continuing a thought that existed in verse 2. The very end of verse 2 holds this thought from Paul. He said this, we have given an open display of the truth. So Paul represents a voice that denies what some of his critics 
had brought as accusations. So as we unpack the human context for a moment, and obviously uh, Paul's life becomes the, the, the centerpiece of this human context from which we ourselves can apply the truth of Christ for our own moment. The human context, Paul's life, will offer us several observations. The first would be Paul's critics. Now in verse 2, Paul had already said, we, were not, we, we have not, uh, we, we have renounced shameful things. We have not walked in deceit. We have not distorted God's message. But in God's sight, Paul wrote in verse 2, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience because we have given an open display of the truth. Paul understood that there were those who had accused him, and here are the words he used in verse 2, of deceiving and distorting. The idea of deceit would indicate a craftiness for one's own game. Paul had been accused of crafting a unique message of elitism that would appeal to the few elite of his culture so that he might become more popular with his hearers. All you need to read is one verse out of any of the epistles to understand the exact opposite was reality. Paul's heart was a heart that served. He broke for the broken. He desired that the truth of Jesus be manifested well among all people, especially those who had been blinded by a false sense of religion. But there were those who came against Paul to say that he, he was deceiving with his message so that he might craft a message that would elevate his own importance. Well, the opposite was the truth. But also, he had been accused not only of deceiving, but distorting, meaning that he, he was using his message to lead people in a wrong direction. Again, totally false to Paul's life, but nonetheless, his critics were there pressing against him. Now notice, secondly, not only Paul's critics, which became... Uh, a piece of the motivation by which God gave these words for Paul to write. But, but a second observation from the human context references Paul's calling. When, when verse 3 opens, Paul states, but in fact, our gospel. I love this phrase, our gospel. Now, obviously, Paul does not take ownership of the gospel by way of authorship or creativity. Paul takes ownership of the calling to preach the gospel. Paul used what I've shared with you before as that apostolic we. Paul said we, or in this case, our, our gospel, meaning the very commission we've received to preach the truth of Jesus. Our calling has been a demonstration of the truth. And so, so Paul held tight to the, the ownership and responsibility to preach the gospel. So Paul referenced our gospel uh, referencing his own calling. So in the human context, our first observation focuses on Paul's critics. There were those who said he was deceiving and had a false message. But then Paul emphasized his own calling, our gospel, indicating that he took personal ownership to preaching the pure truth of Jesus Christ. But now notice something unique in the human context. A third observation lends to what I would call Paul's concession. Paul did make a brief concession in verse 3 when Paul said, But in fact, if our gospel is veiled. Now, Paul had previously already stated, We are not deceiving people with the truth. In other words, Paul has said, I have not veiled the truth of the gospel. We have preached the truth openly. But then, from calling, Paul presented what, what you might call a concession. Paul said, I will give you this. I will say that at times the gospel is veiled. However, the gospel is veiled, not by our mishandling of the gospel, but by the blindness that can come upon the heart of someone who has denied the truth of Jesus. And so a fourth observation would be Paul's conclusion. So what was Paul's conclusion? Here it is at the end of verse 3 and beginning of verse 4. At the end of verse 3, if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Regarding them, opening of verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they could not see spiritually the truth of Christ. So Paul's conclusion demonstrated the 
the lack of understanding the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, because of the hearts of those who were perishing. Now, I find it incredibly interesting in that phrase uh, at the end of verse 3, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, obviously, you understand the language of the scripture by, by looking at the activity, the action, the verbs. And, and that verb at the end of verse 3, those who are perishing, uh, can be said by the grammarian to be uh, in, a, in a present tense. A, a present tense that actually indicates uh, one who is in the process already of perishing. The emphasis here lies upon one who has already said no to the gospel message and thus in their refusal of the gospel have already set their own lives on a path of destruction because they have said no to Jesus and to the gospel. So Paul wrote that which is very true at this very moment. But the gospel, the truth of Jesus becomes blind to those who are perishing, to those who are on the way of perishing or destruction because they have denied the truth and have said no to Jesus. And then Paul, in the opening of verse 4, comments that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see. So one refuses to hear the gospel. Perhaps in Paul's context, his conclusion would reference maybe the Judaizers who because they held so tight to their religious activity as that which they felt made them good and right and holy that they could not even see the gospel truth because they had already made up their mind they were good enough. That becomes a very dangerous place for any man or woman, student or child to stand. I'm good enough without Jesus. Well, this was likely the conclusion of many Judaizers, those who used Judaism, the Mosaic law, the way of the Hebrew law, as their only means of being right with God. And so in that process of assuming they were good enough, they did not really need Christ, that gave the enemy an opportunity, Satan himself, to blind their eyes, to harden their hearts that they would not see the fullness of the gospel. So Paul wrote in the opening of verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who would not believe. That becomes Paul's conclusion. Very sad, albeit, but nonetheless, a very accurate conclusion of Paul's day and ours. Now, there are some who would say the God of the world who has blinded their eyes might actually reference how our God sometimes will harden others' hearts in the consequence of their sins. But I do not believe at all that that would stand as the emphasis here. The entire context focuses upon Hearts who deny Jesus, and thus the enemy Satan, uh, has the room, has the foothold to come in and harden their hearts so that they cannot see what is so very important to see and to know about God's love manifested in Jesus Christ. So we see Paul's critics, his calling, his concession, and then his conclusion. There are many who are blind and can't see. But there's one final observation. Paul's community. Now, Paul described what I would call the faith community around him, those who truly knew Jesus. He described this again in verse 6, where, and we'll, we'll look at verse 6 at another time, but just as an overview, Paul said in verse 6, God has caused the light of the knowledge of God's glory to, to, to be in our hearts through Jesus Christ, through the face of Christ, through our experience with Christ. Face oftentimes references one's presence. And so through Jesus, we can know God himself and his glory can be manifested in our lives through our relationship and our faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul described the community of believers around him. So the human context actually gives us a, a dichotomy, if you will, a, a, a separate opposite of the human condition. The human context referenced those who were blind to the truth, but also if you see the context involving verse 6, the human context referenced those who knew Jesus as well. So there were those who were blind and could not see the truth of God in Christ, but there were those who were not blind, who had trusted Jesus, and they could see. And so that point becomes the place where Paul guides the Corinthian church to overcome the faint heart because we aren't blind. We can see God's presence through Christ and we can know his presence and we can see his glory that is manifested in the face of Jesus. We who have placed our faith in Christ have no reason to be discouraged. We're not blind to the truth. We have seen the truth. The, the truth of Jesus stands. 
The gospel stands and becomes the absolute message of God's heart to this world. And we can know that truth. We can see that truth. And so this brings us to our second observation, a personal reality. The human context described those two audiences of Paul, those who were blind and then his own community of faith, those who knew Jesus. So we, we've seen the human context, but now we, we we back away for a moment from the historicity to look at the essence of, of verse 3 and 4 uh, to understand what we do see, our personal reality. If our faith is in Christ, then we aren't blind. We, we do see something. We, we have a reason not to be discouraged. And so I'd like to spend just a moment building your personal reality if your faith is in Jesus. What do you see? Well, according to the negative appraisal of verse 4, those who were blind could not see the gospel. But according to verse 6, if your faith is in Jesus, you have, you have trusted Christ. You have seen the manifestation of God's love in Christ. And so you have seen the gospel. The first fact of our personal reality, if we know Jesus, is that we see the gospel. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the power of, of the gospel I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For the gospel of Christ becomes the power of God for salvation for the Jews and to the Greeks or the Gentiles. Paul knew well the power of the gospel. And so the emphasis here for our own encouragement is that we do see the gospel. We know the message of the gospel. In fact, I'd like to share with you very quickly five biblical references of this term, the gospel. Because the assumption may lie upon the church that most people know what the gospel means or how the gospel becomes defined. But I, I dare say there are many that I've spoken to who have a uh, limited or skewed view of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. There are some who would think the gospel simply represents a few verses that we memorize if we desire to uh, explain Jesus and his love to others. Others see the gospel as simply four books out of the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the word gospel has a significance for every follower of Jesus. If you're one who has moved past this idea of the good news of Jesus, because you now have prayed a prayer and been baptized and are in the church, and now you're just trying to do life as best you can without any reference to the gospel, then I assure you, you have totally misunderstood the gospel. And so for just a moment, because Paul referenced that those who blind can't see the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For those of us who've trusted in Christ, we can see the gospel. Do not miss the gospel message as the ultimate step to take toward encouragement when circumstances attempt to discourage you. Here stands Paul with his critics, the Corinthian opponents, those from within the church who blasted Paul with false accusations. And what did Paul do? Did he blast back? Did he reciprocate such negative action? Absolutely not. Paul stood on the gospel. He knew that regardless of what man says, what circumstances bring, the gospel doesn't change his identity, his forgiveness, his, his rightness with God substantiates a reality that was announced by the gospel message. Paul stood on this. Oh, dear follower of Jesus, if you're facing discouragement, look at the gospel. So we, we see the gospel. And I'll give you five biblical references of the gospel uh, real quickly. First, the Bible calls or references the gospel as the gospel of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 simply announces the gospel of God. Paul began there because there were many Jews who thought that they could believe in God without referencing Jesus. And so just before Paul wrote this entire letter about salvation from sin only through Christ, he referenced the gospel as from God. This is God's gift. The gospel message of Jesus has divine origin. This message comes from God. So the first reference from the Bible about the gospel is that the gospel is the gospel of God. Second, consider the nature of the gospel. We looked at the fact that the gospel is of God, but now look at the nature of the gospel, the characteristics of the gospel. Galatians 2, 5, the gospel is true. Galatia, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, 
The gospel is, is gracious, the gracious gospel, the gospel of grace that announces God's grace. First uh, Timothy chapter one, verse 11, the glorious gospel, the gospel that demonstrates the glory of God in Christ. Well, these are just but a few of verses that describe the nature of the gospel. The gospel is the truth. The gospel is the gospel of grace. The gospel is the glorious gospel that is accomplished, that has announced what has been fully accomplished in Jesus Christ. So one biblical reference of the gospel is that the gospel is from God. The second reference is that the gospel is described in its nature in many different ways. But third, a third reference of the gospel is how one should respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we're told to believe in the gospel. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, just as you have believed in the gospel. So their lives were changed and Paul recognized it because they heard the gospel and placed their faith in Christ. And so one response to the gospel which helps us better understand the power of the gospel is that when we believe in that message by placing our faith in Jesus and believing in Jesus, then we truly are saved. We are to respond to the announcement of Christ through belief. If not, then our, our hearts can become blind. We've seen that evidenced here in second Corinthians four. Uh, another response to the gospel, uh, Romans ten sixteen, Paul appraised this. Not all who have heard the gospel have obeyed the gospel. He was referencing many from, from the lineage of Israel who still held to their Judaistic values and Hebraic traditions and discarded Jesus. And Paul referenced that as not obeying the gospel. The gospel is to be believed and obeyed, meaning follow and accepted as the truth of Jesus Christ. The gospel represents the power of salvation, the gospel simply being read or written is not the power, but points us to the power, the power that comes through Jesus to forgive sin and to make us right with God. And there's another biblical reference to gospel. God, the gospel, according to Philippians 1, verse 27, is our motivation to live right. That verse says, live worthy of the gospel. Live worthy is from the Greek axios, meaning like an axis, the balance, meaning my life should balance the message of the gospel. Paul wrote, live worthy of the gospel. And so another biblical reference of the gospel is that we are to align our lives with the message of the gospel. Many think that once I believe in the gospel message, I can move on and live life as I desire. No, then you've, you've woefully misunderstood the gospel. The gospel becomes the axis. The, the gospel represents how we are to order our lives. We are to live worthy of the gospel. And then a final biblical reference that helps us to better understand the impact of the gospel comes from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, wherein Matthew recorded Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. So a final reference of the gospel, it references the gospel as a gospel of the kingdom, pointing to the rule and reign of Christ. What God has accomplished in Jesus becomes a life change, not a religious decision. The gospel announces Jesus, not simply a step to take in uh, aligning ourselves ecumenically with the church. The gospel announces life. And we are told here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that when our hearts are blind with disbelief, we can't see the gospel. But you know, if your faith is in Jesus, you see the gospel. You understand the announcement. You understand the firmness and the the, the power, the, the resoluteness and the resolve that, that the gospel brings to our lives. It announces what Jesus has done. It announces his rule and reign over our lives. It announces that we are to align our lives with living in honor of the gospel. Oh, the gospel message points us to the Christ, to Jesus and his rule and reign over our lives as we have become citizens of his kingdom so that we might live worthy of his name. There's a story that I share with you actually from the annals of the Civil War uh, that I, I think will be encouraging to you. The commander's name is Andrew H. Foote. He served directly under uh, General Ulysses Grant. At a certain time during the Civil War, Grant asked his commander, Andrew Foote, to attack a certain fort. Well, the commander was hesitant because there was no time for reconnaissance. So he made his appeal to Grant. Should we not first have reconnaissance before we make the attack? 
Grant said there's no time. And so the general issued the order that his commander would lead in this attack against a particular fort. Well, uh, as the history has, has written, uh, Commander Andrew Foote was a, a committed Christian. And there was no time to develop reconnaissance, but there was time for him to go before the Lord. So just days before the, before the planned attack, um, Commander Foote sought out a local church and attended there on the Sunday before his mission was to be carried out. And his, his desire was to come before the Lord and to bring his heart before him in worship. He did more than just try to find a mass to attend or to quote some scripture. He truly wanted to come before, before his Lord. Well, as history writes, Commander Foote approached the church that he found. And when he arrived there, just because of all of the tumult around the, this time of war, the, the parson, the pastor, was not present. In fact, there was no way that a, a service would convene because of the absence of a preacher. And so this is what Commander Foote did. He had to be encouraged by the gospel. And quoting his own words, I took the pulpit and I preached the gospel to myself. I find this fascinating because the gospel must never leave our focus. Yes, we grow in the depth of the word of God. We grow in our faith. But oh, how we must know the gospel because at times, in moments of discouragement, you may need to preach the gospel to yourself. You may need to be reminded of the absoluteness of God's love for you in Christ and how our lives are to live in response to the glory of God manifested in Christ, the perfectness of God demonstrated in Jesus so that his glory encourages us and gives us that battle cry to go forward regardless of what we face in life. We can face it with faith in Christ and the gospel encourages our hearts. So I encourage you not to forget the gospel of Jesus. The whole of scripture summarizes Jesus and announces the gospel. And oh, how we must at times preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding us not to lose focus upon Jesus Christ. So yeah, our personal reality, we see the gospel. But now let's move just a bit deeper. More significantly, we see the light of the gospel. Now back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when Paul was speaking of those whose hearts were blind, he said their hearts are blind and, and they cannot see the light of the gospel. So what can we see as our faith is in Jesus? According to verse 6, which serves as a strong contrast to verse 4, where our faith is in Christ, God has opened our hearts. He's illuminated us to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus, uh, the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus. So more significantly, we see the gospel, but we also see the light of the gospel. Uh, the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, offers us a word that is the same we find here, this word light or illumined. And in the Septuagint, you'll see a translation of Psalm 44, verse 3, the light of thy countenance. Referenced here in 2 Corinthians 4, the light actually references the, the light that comes from a particular source or being. And so the light references the illumination, the life that comes from the presence of God manifested in Jesus. The root for light found here is the Greek word phos, which means the light that is life. Life giving light. We know that light brings life. My wife and I enjoyed successful tomato plants this summer because our tomato plants were exposed to the light. We could not leave them in the dark. We had to move them into the light. You and I have life. When we know the light, the, the light of the gospel references not just the name Jesus, but who Jesus is as the full expression of God's glory who has overcome sin, death, hell, and the grave. And so we see more significantly the light of the gospel. The light of the gospel was also the key to Paul's commission. Quoting Isaiah 49, 
Paul saw his own commission as a ministry of the light to the Gentiles. Not a simple expression of brightness, but the light of the glory of God manifested in the face of, of Christ. We've been moved. Colossians chapter 1 states this from the domain of darkness. The kingdom of the Son God loves. We've been brought out of darkness and we are in the, the light of God made known in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 9 describes this. Jesus has come to give light and that light gives light to everyone because he is the light. He's the life. He's the full radiance of God who brings life. And so we see not just the gospel, but the light of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself. I, I love the story of, of Jim Lovell. The year was 1954. He was a Navy pilot attempting to land his, his aircraft on, a, on an aircraft carrier. Uh, he was doing some uh, night training uh, just off the coast of Japan. You might recognize the name Jim Lovell, who later uh, piloted uh, Apollo 13. But on this occasion, on one evening, as he uh, took off in his jet off of that aircraft carrier, something happened in his tracking system, and, and there was a short in the fuse in the cockpit that burnt out all of his instruments. So just seconds after takeoff, Lovell is flying with a completely dark instrument panel. And obviously his intuition was turn around, land. But he could not determine in the darkness which direction to go. He could not determine up or down and could not even locate the, uh, the aircraft carrier, the, the ship that, that was, was referencing his home and his safety. But Lovell tells this story. He soon... He soon saw something you and I may not be able to explain. He saw a bioluminescent dioflagonite. He saw a school of these gooey, glowing, living organisms that sometimes are stirred up from the bottom of the ocean by the propeller of a huge ship. And these uh, dinoflagellites begin to glow and begin to form a trail behind the ship, which was common in, the, in, in, in most any oceanic waters. And, and he began to see these glowing presentations creating for him a landing strip that brought him safely home. And as Lovell tells the story, he, he followed the glow and he landed safely. You know, sometimes I think life can feel like that instrument panel that has gone out completely dark. And maybe sometimes you feel like you're that pilot who, who is looking for direction and direction can't be found. Wherever you look, it just seems there's darkness. And can you imagine being able to look and to see what is glowing in front of you? What is true light? Knowing that that light leads you safely home. This becomes the message of the gospel of light. We don't just see the gospel. We don't just look at a story. We see the light of the gospel. Jesus Christ himself. The thos. To use the Greek term. The life giving light. That leads us home. We must follow the light of the gospel. Jesus Christ himself. But even more significantly. Even deeper. We don't just see the light of the gospel. Ultimately. We see the glory of God in Christ. And this is where the teaching arrives. We focus on the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in verse 4, those who are blind cannot see the glory of Christ. Later in verse 6, he would write, but oh, we've been given the knowledge of a God's glory in the face of Christ. The knowledge of God's glory in our relationship with Jesus. Ultimately, we see the gospel, but we see the light of the gospel and we see the glory of God in Christ. That becomes the ultimate presentation of the gospel message of Jesus. The glory of God, his fullness and perfection is perfectly 
and completely manifested in Christ. Consider the person of Jesus, meaning his nature. His person, Hebrews 1.13, is the radiance of God's glory. An old word would be effulgence, meaning the full brightness. The person of Christ, he's the radiance of God's glory. Colossians 2.9, he is deity living in bodily form. The person of Christ, the radiance of God's glory manifested in his body. Consider the presentation in Christ's life. His person, the radiance of God's glory. How about his presentation? We quoted this earlier. John 1 verse 9, light that gives light to everyone. The presentation of Jesus is the life-giving light that leads us from our darkness of disbelief and our our ignorance to the truth. And his light can lead us to the brightness of his glory. One writer has said the glory of Jesus represents his greatness that has gone public. I love that. His glory exists from the beginning and will exist throughout all eternity, infinity upon infinity. But his glory is manifested as his glory has gone public, as he has become manifested before us, both when he ministered on earth and through the Holy Spirit. Now consider his person, or excuse me, his purpose. His person is, he's the radiance of God's glory. His presentation is, he gives light, the light of life. But consider his purpose. John 1, 14, he's the image of God. We have beheld him as the only begotten of the Father. So while Jesus was on earth, we beheld him as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And I love Colossians 1, 15. He's the image of the invisible God. The glory of God manifested in Christ is what you and I have beheld as we've placed our faith in Him. And, and, and we will not see His glory like we will see His glory when we stand with Him and before Him and kneel before Him in heaven. But now we can worship Him because we have beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father fully manifesting the radiance and brightness of God. We see His glory. And this encourages us. This leads us past discouragement and leads us to a place to be encouraged. So if, like Paul, you have opponents that come against you or circumstances that press you down or media announcements that give you anxiety or family situations that burden you beyond what you think you can handle, whatever the the obstacle may be that would lie in front of you at this moment, focus on the glory of God in Christ. Focus on the fullness of Jesus. He doesn't just represent the subject of a small group study or a Sunday school lesson. He doesn't just represent a picture you've seen in stained glass windows or a history lesson from the New Testament. He's God in the flesh who died for you to give you life. And if you have placed your faith in Him, then He is the yes to all the promises of God in your life. So I know that when we are discouraged, we look for more tangible pieces of our life to say, okay, things will get better. Don't wait for some tangible piece to come together. Trust in the presence of God in Christ in your life now. And do not live under discouragement. Look at the glory of God in Christ and be lifted up from the drudgery of this fallen world. I want to end with a quote from a book titled A Sweet and Bitter Providence written by John Piper. And I just want to give you this quote. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. We wish that, do we not? That life would be this straight, perfect line taking us straight to heaven. But that is not life. Life is a winding and troubled road. Switchback after switchback. And the point of the biblical stories like Joseph and Job, Esther and Ruth, is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us through all the strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble to help clean up our mess. No, God is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory 
of Jesus Christ. If you believe that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes, then your present moment of discouragement is nothing less than a moment for God to prove His goodness and to glorify Jesus through your life. How's that for encouragement? That at this moment, like Paul when he faced his opponents, that whatever you're facing that would be discouraging or debilitating in your own mind and maybe even in reality, you can overcome that discouragement because you know God is working good for you and He's working to bring glory in your life to Jesus through this present moment. So I want to pray with you now. And I want to ask that God would strengthen your faith so that you can trust His providence and care over your life. And if you are sitting there now thinking, I wish that I knew that I knew that I belong to God. I've never placed my faith in Jesus. Oh, we want to lead you to do that right now. You can pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe in you and I trust in you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and I ask you to forgive me and I commit my life. I give my life to you. I release control to you. I believe in you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising from the grave. I believe in you. Now you can pray that expression. However your words come out, if you focus on those truths of Jesus and the gospel, Scripture says you'll be safe from your sin. The only way to the Father is through the Son. The only way to know God is through Jesus. You can know God, but that's not far enough. You can have a head knowledge. You can have some orthodox approach to God. But God is not calling you to cold orthodoxy. He's calling you to know Him through Jesus. And I pray that you'll trust Him today if you haven't for your salvation, for your life. So I want to pray with you that your faith will grow. Maybe your faith begins today as you trust Jesus. Or maybe your faith is there and you need to grow in understanding that God is for you. He's planning good for your life. And He will indeed take you through this discouragement. Father, thank You for the promise that we see the gospel. We see the light of the gospel. We see the glory of God in Christ. And Father, now, as we continue to... Hear your words on how to move beyond discouragement. Help us to focus on the gospel of, of, of the light, of the glory of Jesus. Oh, Father, keep our focus on the glory of Christ and not on the drudgery of this world. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And together we said, amen. Hey, reach out to a web location right there. We'd love to communicate with you, have conversation and encourage you in your faith or talk to you more about what it means to know Jesus personally. I'm so glad you could join us. Love you a lot. We'll do this again soon as we enter into uh, part four of this study. Until then, God bless.